I'm so glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Katerina Bryant about hysteria. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Beth. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm Katerina. I am currently a second year PhD student uh, of creative writing at Flinders University. And my debut book, Hysteria, a memoir of illness, strength, and women's stories throughout history is coming out on September 1st. Right, that's fantastic. So what was it that um, inspired you to study hysteria? Well, it came about quite accidentally through my own process of finding a diagnosis for an illness that I was grappling with at the time and was and remains quite unknown. So through my own diagnostic process, I discovered women throughout history who have shared the same diagnosis of what essentially is hysteria. And I was able to explore their stories and write my own alongside them for the book. Have a definition of hysteria? Sure, so this is quite interesting because the definition of hysteria in a way is not a definition, it's an absence of a definition. But to paraphrase the current DSM 5, conversion disorder, which is an iteration of hysteria or functional neurological disorder are symptoms of an altered voluntary motor or sensory function which causes distress and cannot be explained otherwise. So um, could you explain about how the brain tries to protect you? Sure, so this was an idea that I wrote about a little in the book. The idea of these symptoms I was experiencing, um, seizures they were and continue to be. I was wondering whether based on Freud's idea of conversion disorder being the brain physically converting mental distress or trauma into physical manifestations could be a protective mechanism. Something I toyed with a little bit but I'm not sure I believe it anymore. It's a funny thing. There are so many unknowns. It's hard to pinpoint if an illness can ever be something that helps or protects you or if because you're experiencing something quite distressing, you just hope this to be true as a way to survive, I suppose. Look, I could really understand that with, with your brain because... I know I've heard that people that have been in quite serious car accidents, it's like their brain sort of blocks out those few seconds beforehand and then they, they don't have any memory of it. So would it be along the same lines as you, your memory sort of protecting your brain? Yeah, exactly. So um, that experience is often called dissociation and 
dissociation itself is a part of my ongoing illness. And I think it's 25% or maybe even 70, up to 75% of people will experience a dissociative episode within their lifetime. Um, but usually it's a one-off. So, for example, in a car accident and as a result of trauma, um, rather than an ongoing experience like myself and other folks deal with every day. Really interesting. Now, you, you did a bit of a uh, study and you mm. had visits to doctors and psychiatrists. Can you tell us about that? Um, sure. So my own, the book follows the, my own experience with the medical industry, as well as talking about the experiences of women throughout history and their dealings with neurologists, psychiatrists, psychologists as well, and the kind of ongoing power dynamics between being a patient and trying to seek help from these medical industries. Um, for myself, I think a really shocking discovery in my own lived experience was that help is quite difficult to find um, and that's exacerbated if you have a complex illness. And not only that, that although Australia has a universal healthcare system, it is an incredibly expensive process, nonetheless, to find help and to receive ongoing treatment. Yeah, yeah, that that would be really frustrating. Um, so, how how um, what what is the power dynamics like? I mean, I know in fashion history, women would always go and see like male doctors or psychiatrists. So, um, do you, do you think it's any better now that there's quite a few women within the field? I think I cannot speak to how it was in the past. So I'm sure in some aspects, because there are, there is a more diverse and inclusive range of people within the medical profession, it is in some ways better. But because the whole basis of the medical profession is built on male ways of thinking and treating, even if there are women in the profession, the diagnostic manuals, for example, can have a massive gender bias or the way we understand and believe women or unfortunately don't believe their ability to narrate their own bodily experience can also have an effect. So I think while it is better, the internalised misogyny perhaps or the ongoing gender bias still means that women are not treated as they should be um, as well as non-binary folks are not treated as they should be when trying to find care and treatment. I suppose it's just the whole framework that's sort of Exactly, yes. Why do you think that hysteria has always been seen as a women's illness? Well, 
the word itself um, is derived from the Greek word for uterus and the idea of hysteria began with the concept of a shifting uterus causing an unknown illness. But I also think while the origins have affected who we view as um, having an illness, I think too, because the framework of the medical profession has always been male-centric, that has allowed ideas about who illness affects to shape the treatment and to view it as a woman's illness, when in fact it can be experienced by anyone of any gender identity. So who was Blanche Whitman? Whitman, yes. Um, I write a chapter about Blanche in the book. Um, she's an was an incredible person. Um, she was a patient of Jean Chacot's in the 1800s in Paris. She had a very traumatic early life, uh, which resulted in her being admitted into the Salpieri Hospital at the age of 18, and she remained there um, in treatment for the entirety of her life. She became known as the Queen of Hysterics through Charcot's Tuesday sessions where he would treat women so that their symptoms would emerge throughout a live audience of men. And he would travel with Blanche throughout France, showing people um, this manifestation of illness and kind of using her literally as a prop. What is Charcot's sorry, stuttering over this, Charcot's hypnosis therapy? <laughs> so the hypnosis was his idea of treatment alongside many other unusual ones. Um, one of them being dermographism, where the doctors would literally inscribe words onto the women's bodies uh, and see how long those markings would stay and observe that. And it's quite a uh, messy history where they would be transcribing their own names onto these women's bodies and marking them in such a way. Um, the hypnosis itself was what Charcot would use within the Tuesday sessions to bring about um, episodes of seizures or shaking um, of the women. Many people have thought that it was an act that the women were pretending in front of an audience, but um, as I write in the book, Blanche herself says that this was not the case. And I think, for my own opinion, when somebody is in such a powerless space and somebody with authority is asking them to perform in such a way 
And when they do perform in such a way, they have privileges. Um, they may not be conscious of their own performance. Was it like with a knife or something? Did he sort of, um, or was it, you know, drawn on? How, how was he put onto your body? Oh, I think it was like scratched on. There aren't many details, interestingly enough. Um, I think the doctors who were recording what they were doing were also somewhat aware that it was not appropriate, uh, especially because within this uh, hysteria wing of the hospital, it was quite common for patients and their doctors to be in sexual relationships. So I think it was considerably messy and inappropriate uh, with the power dynamics there. And they probably were conscious of how much of what they did they wrote down, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, it certainly does. It's sort of almost like they were branding them. Yeah, there were really quite confronting images of um, the hospital name written on a woman's stomach that lasted for months. And as somebody who has had quite difficult experiences seeking medical help, I can't imagine anything worse than that happening to a person. What's the can you explain about the difference between individual hysteria and mass hysteria? Yes, yeah, so within the book, um, I'm looking at the idea of hysteria as an illness. So that is kind of, as we spoke about before, symptomology that cannot be explained um, and a very individual case by case basis but then hysteria is also used in kind of a shorthand term to mean um, a mass frenzy or quote um, craziness so I think that it's interesting that that term came about from the conception of illness to the kind of it proves how people have viewed these women in the past. And in writing the book, that was something I really wanted to write against about humanizing people and showing the strength of these women in really difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's right. It would have been really dehumanizing, wouldn't it? Mm. Treated in that way. So how do you think hysteria has changed throughout history? It's such an interesting question because the name itself has changed quite a bit. Um, so the idea of hysterico pasico in the 1600s with a woman I write about named Mary Glover to um, later on to Freud's conversion disorder and now known as functional neurological disorder or psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, which is what I've been diagnosed with. So the name itself has changed over time, yet 
the understanding has not really moved along, particularly not since Freud's time to present day. It's still very much an unknown. And because people don't know what it is, they don't really know what treatment and care looks like. So in some ways it's changed on the surface, but in others it is very much existing as it once did. So yeah, you mentioned about um, treatments. What, what type of treatments are available? So it's interesting with um, functional neurological disorder that it depends who you go to, uh, to what kind of treatment you have, because the illness exists kind of on the cusp of psychiatric and neurological. So if you were to seek neurological treatment, it would be different to if you um, sought psychiatric treatment. And because the idea of functional neurological disorder is that it is an illness that can't be explained by anything else, the symptoms are really widely different from individual to individual. So it's quite a case-by-case -case basis. Um, for me, it has my own journey, which I detail in the book, has been about developing approaches to understanding how to live with something and having self-compassion and a gentleness to oneself to construct a good life um, within my own circumstances. So it's been a lot of talk therapy and making adjustments, but there's a wide range of treatment options out there. Um, and it's a very individual circumstance. Was it fairly difficult for you to, to write the book, given that it was mainly from your perspective? It was difficult in some ways, but I was writing the book in real time uh, as I was experiencing different appointments and also reading really widely about these women because I found that a really positive coping mechanism as I was writing to understand that I am a part of a rich history of strong women who made something great out of their circumstances. So in a way, writing the book really helped me more than a lot of other things did. So it was difficult, but it was a really beautiful, um, enriching process as well. So you wrote about various women throughout history. Um, who do you think, uh, which woman do you think you can identify with the most and why? Ooh, that's a really great question. Um, so the first woman I wrote about, Edith Jacobson, was the only woman throughout the entire book who wrote about her own life. She was um, incredible. She worked um, as a psychoanalyst analyst rather and um, she actually escaped Germany as a Jewish woman um, during Hitler 
and moved to New York. And it was her experience within a Nazi prison that she wrote about dissociation and depersonalization and used her own lived experience to understand other women better and to write and treat women throughout her lifetime. So I suppose in that way, I connect with her because I am privileged enough to be able to write this book and to share this book. But also there is another woman who um, called Katharina, who Freud wrote about in Studies on Hysteria, whom I write about. And there are some quite uncanny connections there in that we have the same name. <laughs> All right, so what, what are the connections with her that you think you have? Oh, I think we share a gentle way of advocating for ourselves. Um, it's interesting because Freud doesn't write about her in what I view as a believable way. He writes her as quite young and naive and meek but she approaches him while he's on holiday because he writes his name in her aunt's visitor book. So she seeks him out. And I think that's just an incredible act of tenaciousness um, for a young woman of a different class to Freud as well, to kind of come up to him on a mountaintop and say, here are my problems, can you help me? So I see myself in her in that way, in that quiet fierceness that perhaps is underestimated. Yeah, for sure. So is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? I think we've had such a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Beth. Um, I will just say that my book is available in all good bookstores. Um, from the 1st of September onwards. Right, that's fantastic. So do you have any future study plans within this field? Any more books on the way? Well, I think this particular topic, because of the personal nature of it, will always be something I return to and continue to write. Um, but right now I'm working on my PhD, which is a biography of the first woman clown in America. So it's quite a different project. Um, but again, there are themes of women and women's history and um, alternative ways of living. So in some ways it's quite connected too. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. So what, what was it that, that made you sort of want to do your PhD on her? So her name was Loretta and I studied abroad for a semester in 2016 in Oregon. And as a part of that study, we went to uh, the Oregon Historical Society and I stumbled upon an image of her in a clowning costume. And for the era, she was dressed in a way that unlike other circus women were dressed. So immediately I was very interested. The only details on the photo were Mrs. Harry LaPerle, which is obviously her husband's name, 
So something felt a little bit off. It irked me a little bit. And uh, here I am four years later, still writing about it. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, you're in your, in your second year, so hopefully it won't be too much longer and, and you'll finish your PhD and then you can come back and do another interview on her. That sounds fascinating. Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the program today. Thanks, Beth. And I've been speaking with Katerina Bryant about hysteria. And do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. Right, I'll turn off.